We've been looking at the book of Psalms, and again, Psalms is a book that's right smack dab in the middle of your Bible, that is if you're still using a paper Bible. If you're using a paper Bible, you can pretty much open the middle and you will find the book of Psalms. It's one of the largest books in the Bible, and it contains a great deal of great information. Last week, we talked about the fact that the Psalms are, a lot of them at least, are emotional responses to the things that God has done in the life of those who were writing the songs. Now, some of my favorite psalms in Psalm 51, which we're studying today, is one of my favorite psalms, but some of my favorite psalms are the ones that we know the story behind. I love when I can find out why a songwriter wrote the way that they did. Don't you? Do you like those books? There's these books that that people have written that go back, like, for instance, with some of the hymns in our hymn book. How many of you know what a hymn book is? Raise your hand. Some of us don't know anymore. We have these hymns in the hymn book and and they sound like the words are just flowery speech and all this, but then when you go back and you read what the writer went through right before they wrote it, it gives that hymn a whole different flavor of meaning. And I think it's the same with the Psalms. We don't, unfortunately, know the story behind most of the Psalms that were written and recorded in our Bible, but Psalm 51 is one of those Psalms that we do know the story. And so this morning, before we kind of get into it, I want to share you the, with you the story briefly, just so that you have kind of a context and will better understand what King David was writing when he wrote this. Now, if we look at the beginning of the Psalm, it says right in the title, for the choir director, a Psalm of David, regarding the time that Nathan the prophet came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. So here's the story, and it's found in 2 Samuel around verse 12, um, if you want to read it for yourself. So David, if you don't know who David was, David was the second king of Israel. Once Israel came out of Egypt, they crossed through uh, the the, uh, desert into the promised land, and, and they basically lived there long enough to want a king like all the nations around them. David became the second king. Saul was the first, David was the second. David lived a hard life, and he had a difficult life. He was a warrior, but he was also a musician. He was one of those creative people, but he could also fight, and he was a leader of men, and he made a really great king. And with David as the king, Israel pushed the borders of their country farther than most of the other kings. In fact, the kingdom that David handed off to his son after he died was one of the larger times in the kingdom of Israel's history. And then, of course, his son pushed it out even further, but using other means other than battle. But one spring, the Bible tells us that one spring, at the time when kings usually went out to battle, David decided, for whatever reason, not to go to battle. I'm sure he was tired. I'm sure he probably felt like he deserved a year off. And if I were the king, I gotta be honest with you. Would I go to to fight every battle? Probably not. I'd find some people that fought better than me and I'd send them and I'd stay home. Um, But David did that one year. He he didn't go to battle with his troops. Instead, he stayed in the palace. Now, there's an old adage about idle hands, (laughs) you know, that sometimes idle hands get you into trouble or something along those lines. And this is what happened to David. As David was walking along um, probably his rooftop at the palace, I've mentioned this before, in that part of the world in the cool of the evening was some of the best time to be outside because the weather, you know, or the temperature kind of came down, there were breezes that blew, and so David was outside enjoying the beautiful weather, probably looking over his kingdom, and unfortunately there was a woman on a rooftop not too far away that David could see well within his sight distance, and she was out there, and, and the Bible says that she was bathing, basically, 
Now, obviously she was there bathing where everyone could see her. We don't know what the situation was. Some have argued that was a typical thing. It was normal and David just shouldn't have been looking. Others have said, well, maybe she was out there looking to catch the king's eye. We don't know and I'm certainly not gonna assign blame when we don't know the story. Regardless of that, David looked and he saw, which again, sometimes happens, but unfortunately he looked again and For those of you that are men, especially, who are turned on mostly by our eyesight, it's that second look that gets us, isn't it? That's the one we should have turned away from. That's the one we should have neglected. And that's what David did. He not only looked, but he lusted. And and being the king, he could find out whatever he wanted. And so he went out and he found out who this woman was because her, her appearance pleased him greatly. And so he found out who she was and he sent for her and had her brought to the palace. Now, I don't know under what guise she came to the palace, but it was kind of a hush-hush thing. And, and she came in and David, of course, pursued his fantasy with her and unfortunately fell to the temptation and committed adultery with her. Sent her back home probably thinking no one, at least no one outside of the palace, was any the wiser, and basically from that point forward thought life would go on. Well, unfortunately, he got a message from her a few weeks, months, we don't know, later, saying, hey, (laughs) I'm pregnant. And by the way, my husband, he's one of the warriors who's out fighting battles, so when the baby's born, people are gonna do the math, and they're gonna figure out, my husband wasn't home, and about the time that I came to your palace is when this all happened, so guess what? And David suddenly begins to panic. One, he's the king, so really he can do whatever he wants. Unfortunately, in their culture, that's how it was. But David was also a man who had an upright spirit. He followed God. Last week, I said David was called the man after God's own heart. He very seldom ever did anything that he shouldn't, but his conscience was bothering him as it should be because guilt is a good thing. How many of you know that? Guilt is a good thing. I I hear some of you that are saying, well, we shouldn't live under guilt and guilt can be oppressive and all of that. I get it. You shouldn't live in guilt. But listen, God gave us guilt for a reason. If you feel guilty about something, there's a pretty good chance you shouldn't be doing it. Amen? I thought I'd get an amen from the choir, you know, right? It's all those people out there that don't know how to listen to their guilt. But listen, I'm not saying you live under guilt. I know guilt can be crushing if we don't know how to walk away from it. But in the initial stages, as you're going through life, a little bit of guilt goes a long way, and God guides us and helps us by convicting us and, and giving us that. And David was feeling guilty, and so he felt like, man, I gotta do something, even if nobody else knows I know, and I gotta fix this problem. And so he he brainstormed a little bit, probably with his advisors, and they decided if Uriah came home and slept with his wife, then that might be a good cover for David because, you know, back then things weren't quite as scientific as they are now. Maybe people are bad at math. Who knows? But we might just get away with this. And so he sends for Uriah the Hittite. He sends to, to Joab, the captain of his army, and says, hey, you know that guy Uriah? Yeah, he tells really good war stories, so I want you to send him with news. I'm making a little bit of this up, okay, just saying. Send that guy. I want Uriah. I don't know what excuse he used, but he got Uriah to come and share with him the news of the battle. And so as Uriah came into the throne room, um, he's telling David the story of all that's going on, and Dave's nodding, you know, pretending like he's interested and all of this. And finally he says, listen, Uriah, you've been a faithful soldier. Appreciate all you're doing. You made this long journey. Listen, go home, right? Eat a good meal. Spend some time with your family. Wink, wink, you know. Uh, go home and enjoy being home for a night since you've been out on the battlefield for all these months and, and, and just enjoy yourself. And so Uriah leaves his presence. Well, Uriah was a very, very upright man, a man of integrity, 
A man who understood that as a soldier, when his brothers in arms were not sitting at home with their wives, he, he, he just couldn't do that. And so Uriah went to the city gate, or the, the gate of the palace rather, and basically stayed there at the, gate city, or at the palace guard, oh wow, palace gate with the castle guard. It's gonna be one of those kind of days. And he didn't go home. And the next morning, David's spies, I mean advisors, came to tell David, listen, man, this Uriah guy, he did not go home last night, and everybody knows it because people are patting him on the back for being such an upright man that he would not forsake his brothers in arms who are out sleeping in the fields and, and in rocks and crevices and all that stuff, and people are patting him on the back saying what a good soldier he is because he refused to go enjoy the comforts of home when his brothers in arms couldn't. And so David's got a problem now. And so David hatches yet another scheme. Isn't it amazing how when we sin and we try to cover it up that things just kind of keep snowballing? Or am I the only one that's had that situation develop? I mean, I'm perfect. I'm your pastor. I'm, I've never sinned. I mean, that's what I meant to say. I'm kidding. It happens, doesn't it? And so David comes up with another scheme. And he writes a letter to Joab. And the letter says this. Listen, Uriah is a liability to me. I need you to put him at the front where you think the battle is going to go the hottest and the heaviest. Put him in front of their fiercest warriors. And then at just the right moment, I want you to pull everybody else back and make sure that Uriah gets killed. And so he rolls up this thing. I'm sure he probably sealed it somehow so Uriah couldn't read it. And then he gives it to Uriah to deliver to Joab. So get this. Uriah is carrying the letter saying... I want you to kill this man. And so he gets there and he gives it to Joab. And sure enough, Joab is a military commander with great efficiency. And he puts Uriah right at a point where he knows the enemy is the fiercest. And at the right moment, everybody pulls back and Uriah is killed in the battle. Nobody has any questions. It's all good. And so he sends a letter back to David. I don't send somebody else this time. He, he sent him back to David and said, listen, we've experienced great losses. The enemy is fierce. Many have died including Uriah the Hittite. And David probably felt a sigh of relief. And you know what? The fact that he probably felt a sigh of relief makes me really, really angry. Because that kind of thing shouldn't happen, should it? I mean, I get with all of our television and all the violence that we see, that kind of thing really doesn't phase us anymore, but it should. The idea that David would take another man's wife and then kill her husband just to cover up his sin makes me disgusted and I hope it does you but he probably thought he was in the clear well there's this guy by the name of Nathan and he was a prophet of God now David had a great relationship with the prophets of God because David was a man who followed God he did what God said he was a man after God's own heart so usually the prophets were there to pat him on the back and say great job nice going keep up the good work and so Nathan walks in the room and and I don't know if David could tell anything was wrong he's like hey how's it going Nathan what's what's up what do you need? And Nathan says, I need to tell you a story. There's something troubling me. He says, okay. So Nathan tells a story. And basically the story goes like this. There was a wealthy man who had hundreds of lambs and all kinds of flocks and herds. And this wealthy man had a visitor come to his house. And in order to feed the visitor, he wanted to butcher one of his lambs so that they could have a meal and he could provide for his visitor. But he didn't want to take any of his flock. So he went across the road to his neighbor. Now his neighbor was poor and only had one small lamb to his name. 
And that lamb, because it was the only one he had, was like a child to him. Like he let it sleep in his bed, he brought it into the house. It it was like his own child. It was the only thing of value this man had. And yet this rich man went across the road, stole that man's lamb, butchered it, and fed it to his guests so that he wouldn't have to take one of his own. And David, man, by the time he heard the end of the story, he's fuming. He's like, you tell me the name of that blankety blank. Okay, David probably didn't swear. He's a man after God's own heart. I'm sure he said words that were angry. And Nathan the prophet took his bony finger, at least I imagine it being bony, and pointed it right at David and said, you are the man. You did this. You had everything you could have ever wanted. God gave you so much, and yet you took the one thing that this man Uriah had that was of value to him, and then you killed him to cover it up. David's response to Nathan when confronted by his sin is a response that we should remember well because it's the right answer. How many times in life do you actually get somebody saying to you, this is the right answer? I can assure you, this is the right answer when you are confronted by your sin. David said, I have sinned before the Lord. That's it. That was the right answer. Remember that. Because this psalm was written in the days, weeks, maybe months following that event. As David dealt with the the anger and the frustration at his own sin, as he watched as the child that he and Bathsheba had together withered and died because of the judgment of his God, as he tried to work through the fact that nothing that he seemed to do um, caused his prayers to rise through the ceiling, all the worship, all the sacrifices, everything that he did, God seemed to not be listening. And so he wrote this psalm. Now, this is a long psalm, and if I were to work through it um, piece by piece, we'd be here all day. So what I've kind of done is I've broken it up into a couple of different categories because I want us to see the depth of the repentance of David's soul because repentance is important. Hear me on this. Salvation comes by grace. Make no mistake about it. You do not have to earn God's grace. Amen? The Bible says salvation is by faith. It is an act of grace excuse me, is a gift of God, um, not, not of works, lest any man should boast. So grace is freely given by God. But listen to me, repentance is the key that opens the door to grace. Because without repentance, I believe it is impossible for us to experience the grace of God. What does 1 John 1, 9 say? If we confess, if, conditional statement, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confession, repentance is necessary. And David gives us a picture of what real repentance looks like. First of all, he, he kind of tells us um, some stories and, and gives us these words that are all based around the idea that he is guilty. He uses the word sin a lot. He uses the word guilt a lot. Listen to some of what he says. In, in verse four, for instance, he says, against you and you alone have I sinned, speaking of God. He says, I have done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say, God, in your judgment against me is just for I was born a sinner yes from the moment my mother conceived me he was a sinner and so David first and foremost he recognizes throughout the course of this psalm in so many different repetitive statements that he is guilty as charged I am a sinner I am guilty 
I am deserving of the punishment. Whatever punishment you, you decide, God, I am guilty. Listen, if you're gonna repent, there needs to be a sense of realization that we are all guilty. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Before you can repent, before you should confess, you, you have to understand we are guilty. That's what repentance is. And then he goes on and, and talks a little bit about what he did. Now, interestingly enough, you would expect a really good confession to give all the gory details, amen? Isn't that what we're used to hearing when, when somebody gets up in front and confesses what they've done? You know, therapists and psychologists will tell us, well, you should definitely confess it all, get it all out, it's cathartic, you know, just, just kind of spew all the details out there. Well, here's why I don't think that's always necessarily a good idea. Because sometimes we spend so much time describing our sin that what we're actually doing is glorifying it. Because people love to hear about how we failed. Am I right? Am I right? Why do you think that the four Detroit Lions who gambled are in the news this week, right? Why is that? It's because we thought the Lions were going to win and now they're not? No, we, we know better. That was, a, that was supposed to be a joke and nobody's even laughing about that. It's like, yeah, we know, Pastor. They'll never win. It's fine. Listen, the reason we know that is because people love that. Now, every once in a while on a news channel, you know, there's these news channels that every once in a while, oh, we're gonna do a positive story. We're gonna do, oh, this is the good news from the community. And the reason we think those are so unique and different is because the rest of the time, all they're telling us is all the bad things that everybody does. Why? Because that's what we wanna know about. Secretly, we don't wanna hear the good news. We wanna hear all the dirt. Give me the details. And, and David doesn't give us those. Listen to what he confesses. He simply says this in verse three. He says, for I recognize my rebellion. First and foremost, he says, you know, he doesn't talk about adultery. He doesn't talk about, he simply says, I have rebelled. I have done what God told me not to. I have done something that is outside of what God chooses for me to do. And therefore, because I did not follow his will and his plan, I am guilty of the sin of rebellion, first and foremost. It's a great summary statement. Many of us could confess that very same thing probably from time to time. But then he goes on and he does acknowledge one other part of it. In verse 14 he says, forgive me for shedding blood, O God who saves. So apparently the murder part of it, that was definitely worth mentioning and he lets it go before everyone. I have shed blood, I, I am a murderer, I should not have done that. And so following his I am guilty statements, he, he brings it back to the point of confession where he actually verbally says at least traces and little pieces of what he did that was actually wrong. And that's a big part of repentance, to acknowledge that what we have done is wrong and what parts of that were wrong. Then he goes on and talks for a moment about the things that he has lost, the impact of sin on his life. You guys know, right, that sin always brings an impact. Sin may give you um, happiness for the moment, but true joy is fleeting when you're living a life of sin. He, he actually says that in verse eight. He says, oh, give back my joy again because the sin in his life had taken away the joy that he had. In verse 11, do not banish me from your presence. He recognizes that his sin has caused a distance between him and God. And when you're somebody who lives close to the heavenly father and you start to feel that distance, it is a horrible thing to experience being distant. It's kind of like some of you who, who live in loving relationships with your spouses and suddenly you have to be apart for a while and you start feeling that distance because you're so used to being close to them. I'm just gonna leave that right there and let you guys sort it out because some of you, I think, got that look in your eye that said, time away from my spouse? Oh, yes. 
That sounds like it might be fun. Yeah, just, just go with my illustration, okay? It'll keep you out of trouble. Anyway, um, do not banish me from your presence and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Now, again, in the Hebrew, it's the spirit of holiness is kind of the way it's really actually phrased, not necessarily the Holy Spirit. Now, a lot of people will say the Holy Spirit didn't yet exist in the Old Testament because Jesus gave the Holy Spirit uh, at the day of Pentecost. Well, I disagree with that a little bit. I recognize that there was a change in the way the Spirit worked, but if God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, then in my view, there has always been a, a Holy Spirit. And the Spirit of God clearly throughout the Old Testament did work in people's lives. Now, the way that the Spirit worked and the way the Spirit was able to dwell in a life may have changed based on what Christ did on the cross, but I guess we'll just have to sort that out when we get to heaven, right? But he says, don't take the spirit of holiness or the Holy Spirit from me. In other words, I don't want to walk alone. I don't want to do this alone. I need your presence with me, God. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit, he says. You will, re- you will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God, telling us that his sacrifices, his worship, have been rejected by God. He's not only lost that relationship, but even his worship doesn't seem to penetrate above the ceiling you ever had moments like that where you're praying and it feels like the prayers are just bouncing off the ceiling hitting you in the head my mom used to use that terminology you know I think my prayers are just hitting the ceiling I don't think anything's getting through let me tell you something God hears everything but if you want your prayer life to give you the experience of relationship that it's supposed to then you better make sure there's no sin bringing distance between you and God because it's really hard to communicate with someone that you have something against. Again, go to the marriage analogy. Our marriage, if I've done something stupid that my wife is upset with me about, our marriage is tough during those times and it isn't until we make that thing right that we can once again experience the love that God gave us for each other in a powerful way. And so he's lamenting some of the things that he has lost. And let me tell you, sin will always bring loss with it. You might experience a momentary sense of satisfaction or joy or whatever because you're indulging the flesh. But when it comes down to it, there will always be a price to pay for sin. He goes on, and and in a lot of this text, he actually is repeating the things that he wants God to do for him, you know, and and there's a whole bunch of them. Let me just kind of rifle through these. In verse one, have mercy on me, O God. Again, these are requests that he makes of God, and he uses a lot of kind of washing kind of verbiage here. He says, blot out the stain of my sins. These are words that, that communicate, especially if you've ever done laundry and have children, right? Blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. Purify me from my sins and I will be clean he says wash me and I will be whiter than snow don't keep looking at my sins turn your face away from me in other words Um, remove the stain of my guilt create in me a clean heart O God renew a loyal spirit within me in my opinion that one gets to the crux of the issue You see, all of these things that David is praying for God to do and that we should pray for God to do are bringing up the fact that David knows I've done something terrible and I can't fix it. I can't stop being a man who has a wandering eye, at least not on my own. God, you are the one who can create in me the kind of heart that can say no the next time this temptation or any temptation comes before me. 
And listen, we need to come into that recognition today. There, there are times when I, I know I've done this, maybe you have too, when I'm just trying to fix myself. You know, um, I, I recently have been working on my cars more because I have no money. It's one of those tragic things that, you know, I shouldn't work on cars. I shouldn't be allowed to work on cars. Someone's going to get hurt. Uh, I'm just saying that. You didn't even laugh at that. You're like, yeah, we know. We know, Pastor. If you work on the car, somebody's going to die. Yeah, well, that's, that's me. I'm not good at it, okay? And I hate it. And I keep thinking to myself, I'm watching this YouTube video. I can totally do this. It even tells me what wrenches I need. Well, you know what? The last time I did the brake job, the wrench they told me to use was the wrong one. I spent three days trying to find the right wrench because of that stupid YouTube video that showed me how easy it was. You know what? There are some things that we should just should not try to do for ourselves. Amen? For me, it's probably auto mechanics. I don't know what it is for you, but I can tell you what it is for all of us. You are never going to make yourself pure and clean by yourself because you have a sin nature just like I do. And there will always be temptation and there will always be that, that desire to do something that does not glorify God. And there will always be the voice of the evil one whispering in your ear. But when God comes in, when Jesus allows his spirit to come into our hearts, it's almost like David was having a foreshadowing of what Jesus did for his disciples because Jesus told them, I'm gonna send the spirit of truth and he will lead you into all truth. And David is praying for that very thing. Create a pure heart in me, God. I can't do it by myself. Fix me. (laughs) Fix me, God. Make me better. Make me holy. Make me who you want me to be. And so I love the fact that he asked so much. At first, I kind of thought, man, he's so selfish. He just wants and he wants and he wants. This is a confession. He should just be telling God all the things he did wrong. But what David wants is for God to come in and change him from the inside out, which is what Jesus wanted for all of us. And that, my friend, begins when we repent. That's when that begins. What will I do? David then makes a few statements about, you know, God, if you do this work in me that I'm asking you to do, this is how I'll respond. And, you know, he says things like, you have broken me, now let me rejoice. Once I've experienced repentance, I want to rejoice again. In other words, David just couldn't worship like he used to. Then I will teach your ways to rebels. You gotta love that statement, right? Because David knows I'm guilty of the sin of rebellion, and you know what? I know some people who are also. How many of you know somebody that's rebellious? Raise your hand. How many of you are somebody who's rebellious? <laughs> don't raise your hand. Don't put, I don't want to know. He says, listen, I will teach other rebels, other people like me, other sinners, your ways. I'll try to keep other people from experiencing what I've had to experience. Um, unseal my lips, he says, that my mouth may praise you. And then he talks again about the offerings. Then you will be pleased with sacrifices offered in the right spirit with burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will again be sacrificed. Listen, David had sacrificed and, and done all kinds of forms of worship to try to get in good with God. And none of it had worked. And he knew what the problem was. The problem was he needed to repent. And once he's been wiped clean again, he knows that the worship will once again fill the tabernacle as it should. What a great outpouring from the heart of somebody who failed to a bunch of people, you and I, who have failed. Am I right? 
Interestingly enough, David isn't the only king of Israel who failed, as you might imagine. And I want to share with you that I believe that the way that David responded to this accusation, to this confrontation of his sin, determined the, the rest of his life. And I believe that the way you and I respond when we're confronted to about our sin, the way that we respond will determine the way that the rest of our lives go. Let me just share a quick story to let you know that. Saul was the first king of Israel. I think I mentioned that earlier. As Israel kind of started becoming a nation, they looked around them and said, hey, everybody else has got a king. We want a king. And so Saul was kind of a reluctant king at first, but eventually he kind of came into his own. And he helped them defeat some enemies in battle and he became God's um, kind of instrument in, in being the king of Israel but there was one particular moment where Saul failed and it wasn't even a big thing like compared to what David did it was nothing here's the story he basically Saul was waiting to go into battle against the enemy the enemies gathered across you know the field there they can kind of see him afar off and before they go to battle he has been commanded by God and by Samuel the prophet to wait until Samuel gets there Samuel when he gets there will offer the sacrifice which will in their minds bring God's blessing on the army so that they can win this battle against the enemy and so Saul is waiting there for Samuel to come and he's waiting, and he's still waiting, and his men are coming to him saying, uh, are we going to get ready for this battle, or what are we doing here? Um, we got to wait for the prophet of God. Where is he? I don't know. You know those prophets, he's off, probably off somewhere hearing from God or something. Well, you know, he's still waiting. He looks across the field and begins to see that the enemy, they're putting their armor on, man. They're, they're sheathing their swords. I mean, they're getting ready to go to battle. And still, no sign of Samuel. And probably he's got messengers running back and forth. Hey, go see if you can see him yet. Nope, not coming yet. Where is he? How many of you have sat in the parking lot of a grocery store feeling that same way when your spouse is inside there? I said spouse, not wife. I'm, I'm open to the possibility men might do that too. Menards, right, men? I can imagine that's probably just a little bit how same. When is he going to show up? And so Saul finally says, "Listen, we got to get this. We got to get this show on the road. You know what? Bring me everything we need for the sacrifice. I'm just going to do it myself." Okay. And so he puts the bull on the altar, does whatever they have to do, sets the thing on fire, and right about the moment that the fire is consuming the altar, guess who shows up? Samuel. What are you doing? That's my paraphrase. <laughs> Saul, what are you doing? I told you to wait for me and I would offer the sacrifice. Listen to, what, listen to what Saul says. He's got three responses for Samuel. One, I saw the men scattering. In other words, all my men were freaking out. They were, they were going nuts. They were going to desert on me. Samuel, you didn't come. They were deserting. Secondly, you didn't arrive on time. You were late. It's your fault, Samuel. You were late. Third, the Philistines are ready for battle. They're readying themselves. They're, they're getting their stuff on. Man, it, it's just, it's time to go. So I felt compelled to give the sacrifice. In other words, I didn't have any choice. How many times have you or I answered that same way, right? Jeff, why did you do that? Well, it was his fault and it was his fault and it was this fault. It might have even been God's fault. I don't know. Saul, in case you're wondering, was severely reprimanded by Samuel the prophet and told that because of his disobedience, God's hand was no longer on him. 
God shortly thereafter anointed David as the king of Israel. And even though David did nothing to deserve it, Saul ended up spending half of his reign chasing David all over the countryside, trying to kill him just because he knew that God had anointed him as the next king. Saul ended his life in the midst of a losing battle by falling on his own sword. Doesn't that sound like a great way to go? David, on the other hand, did something that I think is way more terrible than what Saul did. And when confronted with his sin, took responsibility and simply said, what, do you remember from before? I have sinned against the Lord. I was really hoping somebody would remember that. Can you say it with me? I have sinned against the Lord. One more time. I have sinned against the Lord. That, that's the right answer. And you know how David ended up dying? He lived to such a ripe old age that he couldn't stay warm. How many of you can identify with that? <laughs> and back then, they didn't have electric blankets. So you know what? This is a little creepy. In fact, a lot creepy and certainly would never happen today. But they, they tried so hard to keep David warm in his old age that they took young ladies and kind of inserted them in his bed beside him because body heat was the only thing that would keep him warm. <laughs> or so David told them, you know, I mean... <laughs> And he died in his sleep, in his palace, with his family and his friends around him. Which way would you want to go? Listen, I believe that that moment in both of their lives when they were confronted with their sin was the turning point for both of them. For Saul, it was the day that God said, you're no longer my anointed. And everything was downhill from there. For David, it should have been the moment of his reckoning. And there were consequences but the rest of David's life was still filled with the presence and the Spirit of God and success that came through the power of God because he repented and confessed and accepted responsibility for his sin. What's the lesson for us? Friends, <laughs> if you're looking to follow Jesus, things will go so much better for you if you will just accept your sin and repent and confess and get on your knees and humble yourself before God. Understand that you're guilty. We all are. We spend so much time trying to keep God from knowing what we're doing. And you know what? He knows it all anyway. You know, it's like being a parent. You know, half the time when my kids are doing stuff, I knew long before they ever told me or I ever caught them. Did any of you do that? You just watch them do the wrong thing just so you can continue to gather evidence, right? I mean, that's because you love them. I mean... God knows everything. You can't hide from him. Repent. Repentance is the key to open grace. God's grace is available and open to everyone. The Bible says he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I know I quote that a lot, but it's one of the greatest scriptures in the Bible. He doesn't want anybody to miss out on grace. But the key to opening grace is repentance. And David gives us in spades a wonderful, a wonderful story of how to experience repentance in a powerful way. Bow your heads with me, would you, just for a few moments. I just want you to contemplate. I know the hour's late. We're gonna wrap up here in a moment. I want you to just take a moment and, you know, maybe as we were worshiping today, as we were singing that song and as you were contemplating, maybe God showed you something in your life that you need to get off your chest, that you need to confess to him. Maybe there's something going on in your life that you know needs to change and you just don't know how to change it. 
But maybe you're, you're feeling that the beginning of that change might be repentance. That you need to acknowledge that it's wrong and just, and just start changing direction from that way to, to another way, a better way. I want to encourage you, if that is the case, if God has showed you something in, in, in that quiet time or showing you now, or even if he shows you something this week, have the courage to just simply say to him, I have sinned against the Lord. Not, God, I need that in my life because it's a crutch. Not, you know, well, if I, if I give that away or if I do it this way, something will go terribly wrong or it's not my fault, it's somebody else's fault or if that person hadn't wronged me, I wouldn't be so angry with them. Just put all of those thoughts away and simply say the words until you believe them. I have sinned before the Lord. And once you're able to do that, Allow his spirit to work in your life to begin to create in you a pure heart just like David prayed for and renew a steadfast, a right, a loyal spirit within you so that the next time that temptation comes along, you know your answer right off the bat. You know to walk away from it. You know to throw up your hands in disgust and say, not again. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would watch over each heart that is here today and each heart that is hearing my voice over video, that, God, you would help us to see that when we sin, and, and most of us will sin, all of us, in fact, will sin, that when we sin, it's just wrong. And, and when we take responsibility for that, you're ready and willing to extend grace to us. And the Bible says that, that when you forgive us, you take our sin and you cast it as far as the east is from the west. It's gone. It's out of here. Lord, I'm so thankful that David wrote us this psalm to probably to remind himself but also to share with us what he had done. And I pray that you would help us to do that as well. Not that we want to live in the guilt of our sin but that we want to remember what it felt like to have to go through this so that it's a deterrent to walking through that process again. Help us to be able to look back and see the sins of our past and to, to share a victory over them because we repented and we confessed and we allowed you to change us from the inside out god give us a repentant heart as a people as a church and as a nation in jesus name and all god's people said amen amen turn to your neighbor and say grace is good and then you can be dismissed <laughs>